This I recall to mind and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Before we open the Word of God this evening, let's make sure that we are prepared for worship through confession of sin. Make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord. A few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have tonight to worship you by studying your word. Father, we know that your word is absolute truth, that it is the means that you have ordained for sanctifying us, for bringing us to maturity in Jesus Christ, that we might reflect his image, his character, that Christ would be formed in us, and that we might glorify you and reflect your magnificent character to the world around us. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we might be able to concentrate, to think clearly, and to understand how the things that we study relate to our lives and have the courage to make them our convictions that we might uh, have our souls strengthened through these remarkable doctrines and truths that you have provided for us. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Now, we are studying James, so open your Bibles with me to James chapter 2, and we will continue our study. We're down to about verse 5 and 6. Now, we are studying the doctrine of love, which is one of the most misunderstood doctrines that, um, that we could study. Very difficult for Americans, I think, to understand love, and it just so happens that today is a day that that we think about an individual who really exemplified a lot of what the Bible talks about when it talks about this kind of love, and that is Patrick of Ireland. We won't call him St. Patrick. That's a designation that came later. He was not initially a Roman Catholic. Now, tonight you're going to hear the rest of the story about Patrick of Ireland. Patrick was born at Britain, that's spelled B-R-I-T-O-N, in the south of England. And when he was about 12 or 13 years of age, he was captured by Celtic pirates from Ireland. And he was taken to Ireland, where he was a slave for about five or six years. Now, the dates of, uh, just so you have something to hang this on, the dates of uh, Patrick were from about 389 to 461. So this is very early in the history of the church. In the study of church history, you have the end of the apostolic era at roughly 100, and then the period from about 100 to to 325 is called the ante, that's spelled A-N-T-E, meaning prior to or before, the anti-Nicene fathers, because it was at the Council of Nicaea that the hypostatic union, the deity of Christ, was fully um, articulated and worked out there in the uh, Nicene Confession. So that's about 300. And so his dates are in the latter part of that century and into the next century. So this is very early. 
And at that time, there's still a very heavy uh, Roman influence from the Roman Empire in England. And he probably was a descendant of, of uh, Romans. Now, he was taken to Ireland by Irish pirates. He was a slave for about six years and he tended cattle and did all kinds of menial labor as slaves do. And you can imagine that, that as a young teenager from about 12 to 18 years of age, uh, he had a rather rough life and was mistreated and abused as slaves usually are. And then he managed to escape and he found his way back to England. But in that time... Somewhere in that time, and we're not sure whether it was because of his upbringing in a house where his parents were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether it was that while he was in Ireland, he was, uh, I don't think it was in Ireland because of the desire that came later. I think maybe uh, it was either due to his parents or maybe when he returned to, to England, somebody confronted him with the gospel and he became a believer. And he knew that his captors, those who had enslaved him, his masters back in Ireland, needed the gospel. Now here he's going to, he has this heart to take the truth back to those who had enslaved him, who had abused him, who had used him in many menial chores. And he realized that ultimately they needed the gospel. They needed the truth. And that's what true love is. True love is not some romantic emotion some sense of uh, sentimentality, some warm fuzzy on the inside. True love is doing something, doing what is right, doing what is best for its object, even if it entails personal sacrifice and personal loss. And this is exemplified by Patrick. And he went back. He uh, he first he went through training in a monastery, and as opposed to having a uh, really full Roman Catholic. Theology has not developed at this time. You don't see any kind of development of a papacy until Gregory the Great in roughly 600 A.D. Gregory never took the title Papa or Father or what we call Pope, but he acted like it. By then the Roman Empire had collapsed and uh, uh, the uh, various barbarian tribes were invading Rome, so Gregory pulled together an army and he went out and he defeated the barbarian hordes that were coming into Rome. And he basically exercised the kind of autocratic leadership we come to associate with later popes, but he refused that title. He was an administrator and organizer, and it's not till uh, his reign as pope in roughly the 7th century that you see the beginnings of Roman Catholicism. If you wanted to find Roman Catholicism in terms of their soteriology, and works, then you have to wait until about the 10th or 12th century before they formalize a works theology at the Fourth Lateran Council. So Patrick is really an, ex- uh, an example of Celtic Christianity, pre-Roman Catholic Christianity. But like everything else the, the, the Roman Catholics came to over the years, they've assimilated Patrick into their pantheon of saints. And uh, he probably would have nothing to do with what we now call Roman Catholic theology. But he had a tremendous ministry, just a fantastic ministry in Ireland. And he had thousands of converts among the Celts in Ireland and established one of the most incredible Christian cultures ever to exist in the early part of the church age. In fact, 
as we've studied in history, we see that God has called one particular nation as a covenant nation, and that was Israel. And there's only one covenant nation in all of human history, and that is Israel, because God has entered into a specific covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which established the uniqueness of that nation. But in this age, in the church age, while uh, Israel is out in uh, rebellion against God, God uses various different Gentile nations as client nations. These are nations where the gospel is freely proclaimed, where the Bible has, uh, has a level of authority and respect, where Jews are usually protected, and where there is a large no- amount of missionary activity. Now, there wasn't exactly a, very many Jews in, in Ireland at this time, but the gospel was being proclaimed. They did much to preserve and to pass on the text of Scripture. They founded many monasteries, and eventually Celtic Christianity carried the gospel back over to England and established a number of monasteries where they copied the Scriptures, and it was passed on. In fact, Ireland during this period, from roughly the the 5th century up through about the 9th century, is um, a nation that maintains culture and carries the lamp of Western civilization forward, and it's because of the work of Patrick of Ireland. They had a missionary activity, as I mentioned. They sent missionaries back to the continent, to Gaul, which we now call France, to the uh, German barbarians, to Scandinavia, all over Western Europe, all as a result of Patrick's dedication and his love for these Irish Celtic barbarians who had enslaved him. By the time he died, Christianity had spread throughout Ireland, a Celtic form of Christianity, and that had pretty much replaced the old, uh, what we would now call New Age religion, but back then they called it uh, Druidism. And the Druids worshipped uh, trees and nature, and they were sort of one of the original tree-hugger ecology types in, uh, in the early part of this, uh, this era. Uh, it's interesting to note that one of, one of uh, Patrick's followers was a man by the name of Columba, and Columba took the gospel back to Scotland. He was a missionary to Scotland, and there's a small island between Ireland and Scotland called Iona. And he established a, a, um, a monastery on the island of Iona where they trained uh, pastors and missionaries who were sent out all over England. They were sent into the north to Scotland to take the gospel to the, to the Picts and the Scots and then to the uh, Angles and the Saxons down in the southern part of the island. Uh, one of his followers was a a man by the name of Aidan, A-I-D-A-N, and he lived from about 635 A.D. to about 710, and he founded a monastery in sort of north-central England, which was called Lindisfarne. And very famous Lindisfarne Gospels are in the um, uh, various... Uh, 
pages from the Lindisfarne Gospels are found in a number of different museums because of all the incredible artwork and the illumination. That's what they did, they did when they would take a, an initial letter of a paragraph. And then they would, you've seen pictures where they would draw very intricate drawings around that letter with trees and leaves and flowers and animals. And that was called illuminating the text. And the Lindisfarne Gospels are a wonderful illustration of this kind of early Middle Age artwork. And these men carried the gospel. They preserved the Bible. They carried the gospel and promoted missionary activity and really promoted the gospel or promoted culture and were the um, uh, transmitters of culture from the old Roman Empire into uh, early the early Western European civilization. So we have a lot to thank uh, uh, Patrick for, for and uh, we aren't thanking him for running the snakes out of Ireland. But we are thanking him because he was faithful to the gospel and he was faithful to the Lord and he exemplified what the Lord said that greater love hath no man than one who would lay down his life for another. And Patrick exemplified the kind of love that we are studying here in James chapter 2. So look in your Bibles with me now to James chapter 2 and we'll pick up the context in verse 5, begins with the command to concentrate, to listen, to pay attention, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world? And we studied that phrase, and we saw that here He is not speaking necessarily of those who are impoverished materially, but He is talking in the same sense that Jesus did about those who are poor in spirit. This is an idiom for humility. And we see this contrast here between... uh, humility and arrogance, that God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. Not all believers are going to be heirs of the kingdom. All will be heirs of God, but not all will be joint heirs of Jesus Christ. That those who are joint heirs with Jesus Christ are those who are willing to study the word of God, become passionate about the word of God, make learning the Word of God the highest priority in their life and applying it in their lives so that they can advance to spiritual maturity. And as we saw last week, there are ten the Bible in the Bible... Oops, I keep wanting to turn this the wrong way. In the Bible, we can extrapolate from the text ten distinct stress busters that God has provided for us in grace. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Adversity is the outside pressure on the soul. Stress is the inside pressure of the soul. Adversity is what circumstances do to us. Stress is what we do to ourselves. Adversity comes in many shapes or forms, but God says that He has provided for us everything we need for life and godliness. And the word there for godliness in the in the Greek is eusebeia, E-U-S-E-B-E-I-A. And the best way to understand this is spiritual life. It's normally translated godliness, and that old that word derives from the old English word god likeness. And that's what the spiritual life is—the process of developing the character of Christ in us, being God-like in terms of our character Christ formed in us, according to Galatians chapter 
uh, chapter 4. So God has provided, the Scripture says, everything. God has granted to us not some things, not most things, but everything related to life, that is eternal life, and the spiritual life, so that no matter what happens in life, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what hardships, no matter what your environment may be, whether your parents were wonderful parents who taught you all kinds of uh, spiritual truths as a child, who provided for you financially, who provided for you physically, who uh, provided for you uh, in terms of education, or whether your parents were among the worst losers on earth, who provided nothing for you, who were perverts, who were anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-everything. It doesn't matter, the Scripture says, what your environment is, because God in eternity past knew what every single problem would be that you and I would face in this life. So God devised a system in the spiritual life to handle any and every problem that we would face so that we could have maximum joy. That's why James begins this epistle with the mandate... Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that it is endurance that is the consistent, persistent application of doctrine in the midst of adversity that we're able to grow. Now, we've seen that there are basic stress busters. They begin with confession, the grace recovery system. Because whenever we fail, whenever we yield to the pressure, outside pressure of adversity and start trying to handle it through human viewpoint systems, remember the world is great at teaching us all kinds of stress management techniques. But the Bible says we can have stress avoidance. We can have perfect stability, perfect happiness, perfect tranquility in the midst of the most incredibly hostile circumstances. But sometimes we fail. We often fail, and our immediate reaction is that we get angry, we commit some mental attitude sin, we begin to worry, we begin to look at this situation, and we're all of a sudden we're controlled by our sin nature, and we're producing fear, worry, anxiety. Sometimes we get involved in uh, various sins of the tongue, uh, overt sins, and we have to recover so that we can come under the filling of God the Holy Spirit and start applying the doctrine that's in our soul. So confession, 1 John 1, 9, is the grace recovery procedure. Then we're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the power option in the spiritual life. He is the one who who is our teacher, our guide. He is the one who reminds us of the doctrine that we have learned. The third is a faith rest drill. Faith rest drill is where we start mixing promises with faith. We begin to learn how to trust God. When God says certain things like uh, casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you, that as soon as a crisis comes up, we say, Lord, you say you're going to worry about this and not me, so I'm going to trust you and I'm not. I'm going to claim this promise. So the, this uh, is the faith rest drill. Uh, the fourth stage is grace orientation. We begin to learn that it's not on the basis of anything that we are, but on the basis of who and what Jesus Christ is. Uh, part of grace orientation, we have humility. We recognize that God does everything for us, and humility produces teachability, which is the prerequisite for growing in the spiritual life. Then the fifth stage is doctrinal orientation. We realize that God knows more about everything than we do, so we have to uh, orient our life to the plan of God, and we're going to submit to His Word. Now, this is the basics for, uh, for getting 
out of spiritual infancy and spiritual childhood. I don't know how many years it takes, but when Paul castigated the Corinthians, it had only been a few years since he had been there, and he's uh, less than three years, and he's talking to them as if they ought to be mature by this time. So you can move through spiritual infancy fairly rapidly if you intensify your study of God's Word and application of it. Then the adolescent stage is where we develop a personal sense of our eternal destiny, realizing that the only thing we take with us when we die is the doctrine that's in our soul and the health of our soul and the strength of our soul. And when we die and we're absent from the body and we're face to face with the Lord, the only thing that goes with us is what has been developed in terms of our spiritual growth. And that is a production of divine good from the... Uh, from the filling of the Holy Spirit and is the basis for rewards and inheritance in heaven. All of a sudden we realize that we are now becoming, on the basis of the decisions we make in relationship to doctrine, we are now becoming what we're going to be in heaven for all of eternity. I don't know if you've thought about this, but God is infinite. He has infinite knowledge. He's omniscient. That means that, uh, and, and when we die, we're not going to become omniscient. We're not going to become infinite. We're still going to be finite creatures with finite understanding. So when we get to heaven, we're going to have, still have a long way to go. And we'll spend thousands and thousands of years learning all kinds of things that we don't even imagine at this stage. And our starting point is determined by where we are right now. In fact, our very capacity for appreciating and enjoying heaven is determined right now. According to what we're learning in James... There are things that happen to us spiritually. There are principles that we learn right now in the midst of suffering in a sinful world, in a world that's dominated by adversity, that you cannot learn any other way about God. And if we don't learn it now, we'll never, ever learn it. That's why the Scripture says that the angels are watching us. Because they... They're curious, they're interested, because they can't learn these things in a non-sinful environment where they don't have a sin nature. So the only way they can learn it is to watch us and to learn it through observation. So this is a, an interesting scenario. In a sense, you're in a coliseum. You're down on the field playing a game, spiritual warfare, and the angels are in the stands watching you to see how this thing called the grace of God and the power of God really works to sustain you in the midst of all of life's adversities. Just like a teenager begins to realize that life lasts a few, a few years longer than he thought, the believer begins to shift from the here and now to realizing he's living for eternity with this. And then we get into the love triplex, which is what we're studying right now. Problem-solving devices or stress busters 7, 8, and 9. Personal love for God, impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind, and then occupation with the person of Jesus Christ. Personal love for God is our basis for virtue love. It is the motivation for all of the advanced stress busters. It is the motivation for moving into spiritual maturity and advancing to spiritual adulthood. And then the final stress buster is sharing the happiness of God or having inner happiness, inner peace, maximum tranquility in the midst of the struggles of life. That's our orientation. Now, all of that by way of review. The problem here 
in this section of James, from 121 on, is James is, is emphasizing the importance of application. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be appliers of the word. Uh, hearing the word does, does you no good if you don't apply it. And specifically, he is, going to re- he is relating this to the application of love, which is called, in verse 8, the royal law. And he's used the illustration of a man coming into an assembly who's wealthy. This man has power, position, and prestige. He has possessions. He has, his, his fingers are, are covered with gold rings. He is dressed in, in a fine robe. He's wearing his Armani suit, so to speak. And he has on his uh, um, alligator shoes. And he is looking his best. And he's given a seat of prominence in the assembly. And what we find out in verse 8, is that this rich man is not only an unbeliever, but this man is antagonistic to Christians. He's been oppressing and persecuting the believers, and yet they're going to kowtow to his money and his position and treat him with all of this respect. And this this poor beggar, this street person who hasn't had a bath or shower in a few weeks, hasn't his clothes haven't seen a washing machine in, in months, and his, uh, his hair is all dirty and his beard scraggly and he doesn't look like much on the outside. But remember, God looks on the, does not see as man sees. God looks on the inside, not the outside. And this poor man is a believer who is advancing to spiritual maturity. And James is calling their attention to the fact that you have to exercise love for your neighbor as yourself in verse 8. So in verse 6, he brings the illustration to bear. You have dishonored the poor man. This poor man who is truly a believer, you're ignoring him, placing him in the back, rejecting him. And he says, and you're just being unfair as you honor the rich man. Is it not the rich man, the rich, who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Verse 7. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Not only are they antagonistic to uh, these believers personally, but they are uh, blaspheming Christians. They are antagonistic to Christianity as a whole. And then we come to verse 8. Verse 8 says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now, last time, we did a detailed study, or an introductory study, really, of the whole concept of love and love for God. This goes back to the fact that we are rewarded, for those are rewarded and heirs of the kingdom to those who love God, and not every believer is going to be a lover of God. So how do we know if we love God? And we trace this through a number of scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament to show that there's a consistent theme throughout the scriptures that love for God is exemplified by obedience to divine mandates. Obedience to the commands of God. That is your barometer. That's your measuring stick for self-evaluation to see how much you love God. It's not how you feel about God. It's not some kind of warm fuzzies generated by a certain kind of music on Sunday morning that 
makes you emote a certain way. Uh, the Bible says the way you know if you love God, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it's an objective barometer and not a subjective barometer. In fact, you may not feel like you love God. You may have the flu. You may be running 104 degree fever. You may have chills and be absolutely miserable. And yet, if you are applying doctrine in the midst of that health test, then you are loving God to the maximum. That's what we're learning here. Now, there's a very important principle we have to go over here related to the interpretation of Scripture. And we're going to call this principle a dispensational distinctive. Now, this is a matter of interpretation and is something that a lot of people just don't understand. Now, the Bible is divided into uh, two major sections, which we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is primarily directed towards the nation Israel. The New Testament is directed to a different people of God called the church. The Old Testament has hundreds of mandates to Israel. And the New Testament in turn has hundreds of other mandates directed to believers in the church age. Now, the issue is, what is the relationship of the mandates in the Old Testament to believers in the Old Testament? Specifically here, what is the relationship of the Mosaic Law and all of the commands in the Mosaic Law to the New Testament believer? Well, there are basically two systems of theology. It gives you you a little understanding of what's going on. There are are really a few more, but but in terms of prominent systems, there's, of course, uh, Roman Catholic theology, but in terms of Protestantism... There's um, only two primary systems. There's covenant theology. And this is the theology that's usually associated with John Calvin and with his followers, uh, Presbyterian churches, uh, older congregational churches, not modern congregational churches. Most modern churches have bought into the liberal, 19th century liberalism, so... They just have an eclectic, whatever, uh, whatever goes sort of theology. But there's covenant theology, and then there is dispensational theology. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that just because you believe that in dispensations, that you are a dispensationalist. Because uh, many covenant theologians believe there are different ages as well. The primary difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology is covenant theology is based on replacement. The church replaces Israel. That God made all of these various promises to Israel in the Old Testament. They are not going to ever be literally fulfilled to Israel because they rejected Christ as Messiah. The church is the new Israel and replaces the old physical Israel with the spiritual Israel, and is the recipient of these, instead of physical promises like the land, 
uh, etc., they are going to get spiritual blessings and the land becomes spiritualized to heaven. The kingdom becomes spiritualized to the kingdom of heaven. Instead of having a thousand year literal reign of Christ on the earth in the millennium, uh, that becomes spiritualized to heaven and they introduce a certain level of allegorical interpretation with regard to prophecy. Dispensational theology maintains a distinction in God's plan between Israel and the church. All of this by way of a little background. The dispensational distinctive here that applies to our understanding of this text is that in dispensationalism, you have the principle that Old Testament mandates... Old Testament mandates are no longer valid unless repeated in the New Testament. Old Testament mandates are no longer valid unless they are repeated in the New Testament. For example, the Old Testament has the mandates for sacrifice. These are not repeated in the New Testament, so they are no longer in effect. In the Old Testament, you have the mandate to observe the seventh day of the week as the Sabbath and not work on the Sabbath. And that is not, that command is not repeated in the New Testament, so it's no longer valid. However, there are many other mandates, such as not committing murder, prohibition for adultery and lying and thievery and many other things, are, are repeated in the New Testament, so those mandates are still in effect. Covenant theology says, by way of contrast, that Old Testament mandates are still valid unless they are specifically unless they are specifically canceled. Now, use that word specifically because they would say that Christ's death on the cross specifically cancels out all of the sacrifices, and that um, other things change a few other. But other than that, everything else in the Old Testament is still in effect. Now, there's a big difference between those two positions. I don't know if you see that right away, and I don't have time to go into that. I just want to apply that to what we're studying here. What we have seen, and what we are going to see here, is that there is a verse quoted in verse 8, that is a quote from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which shows that this mandate is not only an Old Testament mandate for Israel, but was repeated by Jesus during the age of the Incarnation and is reiterated again here. And Jesus utilized this in reference to the Sermon on the Mount and its application in the Millennium. So this is a permanent principle for all of human history. Now the reason I say that is because there's a lot of things that the Bible says about love and about this principle that are hard for us to apply and hard for us to understand. We need to stop and look at this and go back and see what uh, the Bible says and how we run up against this in terms of misinterpretation today. For example... This principle is that we are to love our neighbor as ourself has been radically distorted in secular psychology in our psychologized America. In psychologized America, we hear that 
man's problem is not sin. That's just an antiquated term for dealing with man's shortcomings and, and it has sor- all sorts of patriarchal religious connotations and we're too advanced for those concepts. Uh, in psychologized America, we hear that the problem of man is not sin, it's self-image. Man has a low self-image and the problem is not that he thinks too highly of himself, which the Bible says, but that he thinks too lowly of himself. He doesn't have a high enough view of himself. And in the pop psychology of the day, the idea is that you need to start loving yourself and accepting yourself before you can love anybody else. Of course, an interesting study I read recently that was taken among teenagers. Of course, everybody thinks that teenagers have low self-esteem and low self-image. And in this survey... 60% of of those surveyed said that they demonstrated better than average leadership qualities. 60%. Now, that's that's not a low self-image, folks. Uh, 0% said that they were... uh, they were, they were bad, picked the bad category. They had no leadership qualities. And there were various other questions in this whole survey, and the bottom line was that all of these kids thought that they lived a good life, that people should emulate their life, and that they were going to be successful in life. In fact, none of them thought they were going to be a failure in life. And that's not consistent with the idea that's popularized that The problem is low self-image. Now, where did this idea that this verse means you need to love yourself before you can love your neighbor come from? If you go back into the 19th century, there's a famous uh, philosopher. He was a nihilist by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. And this is what Nietzsche had to say in his book, Thus Spake Zarathustra. He said, your neighbor love is your bad love of yourselves. You fell into your neighbor love from yourselves and would make a virtue of it, but I understand your unselfishness. You cannot stand yourselves, and so you do not love yourselves sufficiently. Now, that's kind of an awkward translation from the German, but what Nietzsche is saying is that the reason you cannot love others is because you don't have sufficient self-love. He is saying that your neighbor love is a problem because of your bad love for yourselves. Now, Nietzsche was also, Nietzsche's philosophy had a strong influence on Hitler as well as many others. But this idea that this concept from the Bible that you need to love your neighbor before, or you love yourself before you can love your neighbor, uh, was eventually popularized by a psychiatrist by the name of Eric Fromm. Now, he's not a Christian in any way, shape, or form. And he's just popularizing a certain uh, psychological view of man. But his ideas were picked up by a preacher out in California by the name of Robert Schuller. Robert Schuller has written several books, including one called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. And Schuller makes the audacious statement in that book that Jesus, it was okay to talk about sin back when we had a reform, back during the Reformation when people thought about man's relationship to God in those terms, but sin is just an antiquated term. The real problem is self-esteem. 
and that uh, Jesus didn't die for sin, he died for your self-esteem.